this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Speaking of the union, Jay, new union member, need to say ooh, hi. Ooh, Mike, ooh. Mike Bankhead. Oh, oh, yeah, from Twitter. From the Twitter. You know him from the Twitter. He's a musician out of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and uh, we've corresponded with him many times over Twitter about various things. Yeah. And he finally uh, wanted to see what this whole Discord thing was about and start voting in the polls. So he joined us over at Patreon. He wanted Patreon. to find some, some folks to talk about the new Our Lady Peace record. And I was like, well, we've got a channel just for you. Yes. The, <laughs> the busiest channel. On, With lots of opinions. On our uh, Discord is somehow the Our Lady Peace channel. Followed closely behind, lately, by the Hard Rock and Heavy Metal channel. Uh, people are really digging uh, into the... A lot of obscure stuff. I think I, w- I think we should thank Peacemaker for that because I don't know if you're watching Peacemaker, Jay, but uh-huh. every week there is a new uh, okay. classic rock uh, assortment. I just watched the fourth episode. There was Faster Pussycat. There like was the, the intro, or just throughout the throughout show. The, there was a whole like emotional scene set to House of Pain by Fa- Faster Pussycat. <laughs> okay, did not expect to hear that in 2022. It okay. was a- amazing. It was amazing. Um, and uh, there's like, I think a, there's a 400 song Spotify playlist put together by James Gunn, the director and writer for the show. Oh, okay. So all, all little, it's not just like the stuff that is in the show, but stuff that was also like influenced in terms of when he was putting together everything. Kind of reminds me of uh, Yellow Jackets um, and all the 90s music that's in that. It's a huge part of the show. So, yes, I got to get showtime cool. so I can check that out. But we, need, we have one of our patrons here, Jay, speaking of patrons, and he's been here before. Last year, he joined us. His first pick, Royal Trucks. We did that a year ago. Then he joined us for the Soundgarden Roundtable. Had some great insight uh, being from the uh, Southern California area and you know, SST Records and, and their early start, Soundgarden, um, in the 80s. And he's back. A very interesting pick with this one, a band we have not covered. Welcome back to the show, Rudy Stoll. And uh, how you doing? I'm good. Good to see you guys again. Thanks for having me on here. And I, uh, <clears throat> I know you were traumatized by Royal Trucks, so I wanted to go for something <laughs> a little more mainstream this time. I don't know if traumatized is the right word. I think uh, our headspace uh, maybe could not handle what everything that we were hearing. But uh, you went from a minimal. To maximal in terms of volume. <laughs> maximal? If, is that a word? Maximal? No, but we'll go with it. It should be minimal and maximal. Those should be the, uh, the two ends of it. Share with the audience, please, Rudy, your pick for this episode and why you picked it. So back in the day, and I always hate to sound like the old guy, but 1990, um, the way I got turned on to a lot of new music was either by reading Spin or watching 120 Minutes on MTV when the M stood for music. 
And it was always the, that was a really good program back in the day. You guys are a little bit younger than me, but I'm sure you watched 120 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing this band come on. It is funny. I was talking to a friend of mine about it. They had a little blurb at the front that said the name of the band, the song, and the album at the front of the song, or the video, and at the back of the video. And if you didn't catch it, you'd miss it. And I saw the video to Taste uh, off this album, off the Nowhere album by Ride. And it, it blew me away. <clears throat> I, really, I really liked it. But it was when I bought the album, the rest of the album, Taste is not really representative of the rest of the album. I thought it was kind of a jangle rock, kind of in the vein of R.E.M. or something like that from that song. And when I got the CD and put it on, it was like, whoa, this is a whole, this is a whole different animal. Jay, yes. are you familiar with Ride? Had you ever listened to Ride before? Um, I became familiar with them probably late later, like when we started this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my intro to this type of music would have been Catherine Wheel. So in conversations or related to that band, they would come up. Um, and I think I, I gave them a listen here or there, but hadn't spent um, time with a full record. Okay. Yeah, I'm in the same boat because I, I got into Catherine Wheel around the Happy Days album, which doesn't sound anything like this. Right. But shortly thereafter, I heard, you know, My Bloody Valentine and was confused for a long time by that band. It took me a long... Those were like the tumblers were not clicking when I first heard that band. It, it probably wasn't until the 2000s, well into the 2000s, where I went, oh, this makes sense now. Um, and that's when I, I think I heard... Going Blank Again was my first exposure to Ride. And also heard some like Lush, the, uh, you know, that those sort of bands that were happening. And then we did the Shoegaze episode. I listened to some more Ride. And, but I don't think I ever really, other than maybe Vapor Trail, I don't think I had heard, or Seagull, I don't think I'd heard much off of this record. Um, so I definitely had not listened to it all the way through i don't have it on cd i have going blank again and i have what is it tarantula is that the third record yes i have those on cd um and i've heard the new releases because they've actually been back together and put out new material but i think i actually knew the band primarily because when they broke mm-hmm. up was it andy bell that joined oasis uh is that right Sounds right, yeah. I think when when they started stripping original members out of Oasis, they brought in Andy Bell to play uh, bass, I guess. I think. I believe so. I'll have to I'll, I'll have to check with the uh, with the. Yes, he played in Riot, Hurricane Number One, Oasis, and BDI. Hurricane Number One, I remember that band. That was like around for a minute. Yep. Got him mixed up with Hurricane. Totally different band. <laughs> but he plays guitar in this band, right? Or no? Yeah, maybe he was second guitar in Oasis. I don't know. Let's go to the Oasis. Uh, well, we'll do that in a minute. But a little history um, on Ride, because we should probably know, for the people who don't know, uh, where this band, this band's from Oxford. England. They formed in 1988. Um, the lineup has always been the same. 
Andy Bell, uh, Mark Gardner, Lawrence Laws Col- Colbert, because you go got to have a guy with a Z, with a Z somewhere in your name if you're a British band or UK band, and Steve Queralt, 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 Queralt. I don't know how to say that name. That's, there's my slaughter of the of the episode. I slaughtered <laughs> Steve's name. Sorry, Steve. Uh, they actually formed, or they actually, uh, before they uh, put out this record, they put out three EPs called Ride, Play, and Fall. They all charted in the UK, and then this album, Nowhere, which we're checking out, came out in October of 1990. That was followed up by the album Going Blank Again, which came out in 1992, and then Carnival of Light in 1994. And Tarantula in 96. Okay, so I, I left out Carnival of Light. Yeah. Then they broke up for 21 years and reformed in, uh, I guess, 2014. Well, I guess it's not 24. It was, it was 21 years between releases. Weather Diaries came out in 2017. And This Is Not a Safe Place came out in 2019. And there's a lot of EPs and and I think there's a whole like remix album for Weather Diaries that came out and they've had some live records and a best of there's been a box set. So lots of material. And they were on creation records, the legendary creation records at the beginning um, of their career, which uh, was home to many a big uh, UK band in that time, including Oasis. And uh, let's just double check here. When did Andy Bell join the band? Andy, Je- Andy Bell joined, I guess, like 90, 99. So we would have seen him. He played bass in Oasis. We would have seen him when they were touring with Travis, Jay. Oh, okay. Andy, Andy Bell was on bass for that. Yeah, I saw he had mentioned he had done some writing with them, too. Yeah, I wouldn't, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, and then the other, uh, they had... Um, the other replacement was uh, Jem Archer. Guy, guy, Jem. Come on. That's a good name. But it should be Jez. Got to get, get a Z in there. That was the other replacement guy. When they kicked out like uh, the guys that looked like Barban guys from, uh, from Manchester. So over at Patreon, uh, the patrons vote will give away the results when we uh, leave our final or, or reach our final verdict. On this record, but we got a lot of comments on this episode. David Gorgo said one of the best albums of the 90s, despite sounding like it was mixed underwater. Uh, it's sort of a, a backhanded compliment there. Yeah. Uh, Frank Garcia Hale says absolutely worthy album. Richard Waterman says I'll take this over Loveless any day. Whoa. Throwing down the gauntlet. The first four songs are great. Love the drums on Dreams Burn Down. This album is a weird mix of rock, shoegaze, dream pop, and neo-psychedelia. I agree with David's assertion that the mix is a bit off. Willie Dillon, I'm a fan of shoegaze, but for some reason that doesn't do a ton for me. I went with a better EP. Uh, Vadim Taver said, I enjoy Nowhere, but nowhere near as much as Going Blank Again. Part of that is having to do with that I'm not a fan of the way this record sounds. Oftentimes, all around, it's just too muddy, and I think that Andy and Mark are both right on the brink 
when they discovered how to write great songs, which they continue to do today. With that said, though I still enjoy listening to it every now and then, the standout tracks are the three at the end, Decay, Paralyzed, and Vapor Trail. Now he's going according to the vinyl version. Since we're a 90s podcast, we're talking about the CD version because nobody bought this on vinyl in the United States <laughs> in 1990. So the vinyl version has eight tracks, correct? Eight. And the yes. CD has 11? Correct. Because neither of those are real on streaming. So <laughs> the streaming well, version has 15. So yeah, there's a, there's a re-released version that has more tracks mm-hmm. on like Spotify and stuff. But I went with my um, ripped from uh, some website somewhere, MP3s in, in 192K. I don't think that affects the mm. mix at all. Yeah, I'm sure that really enhanced <laughs> the muddiness. It just adds to the overall flavor, Jay. Sure. But I did hear that they asked that their music be taken off of Spotify, so I don't know if that has something to do with it. No, no. this I've been. This has been a couple weeks. I've been listening to this. A joke. The only version available is uh, labeled expanded. So, yeah, I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge fan of the expanded. Um, I, I like the original. The original CD format. I've, I never got really into the expanded songs. Which some of them are, I think, pulled from those early EPs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kyle Bittner said, I found this album to be brutally loud and harsh at times. I prefer Going Blank again because the production is a bit warmer, but this is still a worthy album. In a Different Place was a standout track for me. Gavin, a really cool sound. I like the music, but not, not a fan of the vocal. As a result, I use it as background. So this has to be an album as I don't really separate the songs. Interesting. Whitney says, Whitney Bueller, I'm with Gavin on this. I can't see myself sitting and fully engaging in this because I'm always on the lookout for riffs, harmonies, hooks, etc. I played as background music, though. It's shoegaze, so it just kind of meanders. But that's me and my personal taste as much as anything. I do think Decay, Nowhere, and Vapor Trail are good. It's a better EP to me. Uh, Stephen Musinski wrote a lot. I'm going to have to chop this down a little bit. Um. Oh, he asked about what version we were reviewing. Um, he said, I think this is for sure an album entirely worthy of its praises and accolades, and there are a lot of them. Sure, there's some glaring production issues here, but when I think about this album strictly in the context of what I know about the late 80s and early 90s, all I hear is a fantastic debut record that played a major role in pioneering a sound. And then Patrick Testa said, the vocalist doesn't create much to marvel over. He minds territory very common in the 80s, but this ride record is chock full of uniqueness, whirling noises, and various electrical and industrial sounds and songs. Yes, there are plenty of songs in there for you to snack on while you digest the droning and dreamy audio meal. At first, <laughs> it feels like an overly consistent sound throughout, but repeated listens allow the brain to see varying styles and emerge out of the sonic background like an audio version of a magic eye. Wow. Patrick's, Patrick's going deep. I love Patrick I especially love the 60s psych song as it turns out the vocals provide a welcome consistency and a great compliment to the hazy music that was our folks at Patreon contributing their thoughts Jay let's share our thoughts tell me one thing you liked about Nowhere by Ride I heard 
those things mentioned in the uh, comments pop out um, pretty immediately, and they stood out to me as as being unexpected and a little different than maybe what I assumed or what you might typically think you would hear in a shoegaze. So a couple that um, I really enjoyed. I kind of liked the vocal. I liked particularly like a song like Seagull pulls you in with this somewhat odd harmony that I did not expect. I also felt like the vocal was up front, which I'm expecting um, with a shoegaze record for it to be buried and it's not. So I, I just thought like the vocal approach had a unique take, um, particularly in those harmonies. The other thing was the drumming is can be pretty bombastic. I mean, the, like Kaleidoscope, there's some Keith Moon style like fills going on there, which I also didn't expect. So it creates, um, I think, a, some surprises um, and keeps me guessing a bit. Also, the way that the guitars, yes, you get the washy kind of heavily affected, expected shoegaze kind of guitar tone, but the second guitar tends to be pretty interesting in that it's very string oriented and I don't know what is going on. I don't know if they're like micing the guitar, like the electric strings or they're overdubbing an acoustic, but you hear this uh, contrast between um, a washy affected electric sometimes against this really upfront present um, percussive almost you know chiming all cleaner guitar and it really it it um it created this cool depth and just i think um i want to say dueling but they didn't blend together to me as ex- much as i expected them to uh i expected from a guitar standpoint to mostly be unable to discern who was playing what and how the tones might be different. But I I found myself actually able to um, pull that out. And I thought it helped a lot with the dynamics of the record. Um, You know, there is a good amount of, you know, either loud, interesting takes on how to do loud parts, um, like these bursts of kind of noise and, and aggressive drumming and then pulling back and being like super lush and kind of pretty sounding or a little ominous. So there's, there's, you know, typical dynamics like that, but I think between the, the textures of the guitars, the drum approach, which oftentimes kind of leads that dynamic change, like the songs vary and change more sometimes based on what the drummer's doing than what the guitars are doing, which is a bit counter. You think of like the classic, like, you know, loud, soft, 
dynamic is usually guitar driven, but on this record, a lot of the times things get intense because of what the drummer's doing. Um, and I guess the last thing I would point out is uh, the bass is interesting. Uh, I think a song like Seagull is a good example where the bass line almost sounds like a supergrass song. Like it's really upbeat and kind of bouncy and it's not at all what you would expect for how when the guitars come over top of it, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, I don't want to say polar opposites, but very different approaches, but somehow it, it works because that baseline kind of keeps pulling you through the song and doesn't make it like totally down feeling. It still has just a little bit of lightness to it. Uh, and I think that helps throughout the record, you know, additionally, when they bring in like some of the more jangly guitars, they kind of become like a dream pop band. So I think a song like um, Taste is a good example, or maybe even Vapor Trail, where they, you know, they can do something that's more with a pop intent um, because that, you know, the bass playing tends to have a brighter feel has, it has a little bit of bounce. And then when the guitars get jangly, they can, the band can start to go in this other direction. That's, you know, less uh, heady and a little bit more, I guess, lighter or pop song oriented, which is kind of a nice journey to go on with the record where, you know, there's the middle of the record gets real um, heavy and a little droney and very atmospheric, but by the end it kind of pulls back out. And it becomes a little bit more approachable, which is an interesting kind of, and I'm, I'm mostly focused on like tracks uh, going up through track eight, eight, nine. Cause I think the last two start to sound different to me. Um, I was kind of interested in the original vinyl version, like the original vision of what the record would be. And in that way, it kind of ends on a bright note, which is unexpected. So yeah, that's some of the stuff that I liked. And uh, it had some surprises I was, I was taken by. How about you, Tim? I agree with you. There were a lot of surprises on this record. Uh, as mo- I was not expecting it, how much it leaned into its 60s influences with regards to mm-hmm. the jangly, you know, Birdsian guitar. The, you mentioned like the Keith Moon sort of spastic drumming that appears. Uh, I think. Um, Laz Colbert is sort of the secret weapon in this band. You don't really think about, you know, when I think of like My Bloody Valentine, I'm not thinking about the drummer a lot right. in that band. I'm thinking of the massive wall of guitar and the ethereal vocal and some really interesting and weird melodies that happen and, you know, notes that are creating these really interesting um, sounds, but this is much more song structured than I was expecting. It's actually, it, it seems to fall in terms of sort of complete ideas as songs. Like, you know, I would say on the, on the left side, you have like My Bloody Valentine, which is just this massive wall and you, the lyrics are undecipherable and it's all about mood. And, and on the other side, in terms of Shoegaze albums, you go to like Catherine Wheel's Ferment, those are very song oriented um you know arrangements very clear verses and choruses 
very clear hooks. And this sort of sits in a nice space in between where you get a song like Dreams Burn Down, which is probably my favorite song on the record, which has this, you know, this pulsing, heavy, driving, very straightforward part. But they're able to sort of do the both of those things where they get the really big guitar wall of sound. But then there's a second guitar playing a very simple lead part. But it reminded me of like the stuff that Brian Futter would do on certain Catherine Wheel tracks. And it it was a nice combination of the sort of the huge guitar tone of, of shoegaze and then also the um, more structured song oriented sound. That, to me, balanced with songs like Taste, the jangle pop or the dream pop of some of these songs, provided a nice flow that I can hear where people were talking about. Well, you can put this on and it can just sort of wash over you in the background and it kind of can run together. But I think if you actually drill down into some of these songs, there are some pretty interesting sounds that a lot of other bands weren't tackling at the time, especially in the terms of that those 60s sort of psychedelic jangle sounds that are are not found. You know, Primal Scream had touched it on it, touched on it a little bit. Um, but theirs was not quite in the same um area. And I am curious, you mentioned about the guitar miking. I, I don't know if it's like a clean guitar. And then, uh, or they mic'd the strings, or if they were layering an acoustic guitar on top of there, because there's a lot of like, I can hear what's going on, not just Mm -hmm. getting, you know, hit with a wall of distortion. And that to me, I mean, the the guy who recorded Mark Waterman, I don't have a lot of information on him, but it was mixed by Alan Mulder. And I wonder if that was something that Alan Mulder brought out when he was mixing the album, was pulling out those string sounds you could hear them a little bit more to add a little bit more depth and lastly uh, you know you mentioned the vocals on seagull um i i think they hit like incredibly well for what this is like yes it does sound like it was recorded underwater at times it's a very washy mix and echoey and and reverbed out but also like Gardner and Bell their vocals they cut through just enough yeah. so that you can always kind of get it and 
there were other bands that tried to do this and they pulled off the music end well, but the vocals would always sort of fall flat. Like the vocals felt like an afterthought and they don't feel like that yeah. here. I, I do agree with Vadim though, like, um, or Vadim, sorry. Uh, the, um, I feel like this is like the precursor to what is going to be the next, like as songwriters, they're going to really mm. hit their stride on the next record. But there's a lot to really enjoy here. Um, yeah. So Rudy, I think you mentioned Rudy, like you initially got this because of taste. Yes. Um, and, you know, kind of had to digest the rest of this. So of all the sounds and stuff, and does this work well for you as like a whole record or is it, you know, how does this fit? Uh, in yeah. your listening uh, preferences. Yeah, it does work as a whole record. And I, I really like the comments. Um, I read all the comments and even your guys' analysis. People hit on it. I think almost every song in the album got mentioned as people saying, well, these were the good songs. Well, these were the good songs over here. These are good. So it's, and that album, it really, I've been listening to it for 31 years now. Um, yeah, not <laughs> on a daily basis, obviously, but uh, I've fallen in love with every one of these songs at a different, different time. I mean, I, you know, I have memories of sitting on my deck, looking at vapor trails, listening to vapor trail. I mean, that's uh, that that song has an emotion to it that I, I've never been able to put my finger on. I don't know if it's the bagpipes or, or what it is, but there's something really emotional about that song that uh, I, I've rarely felt in a song before. But yeah, but um, when I first put the CD on, like I was saying, that Seagull it's just obvious you've got this group of talented musicians and they are all just playing their asses off. I mean, the drumming is incredible. The bass line, like you're saying, is, is amazing. And they go that long instrumental lead up. And then when it breaks into the vocals, it's like, you know, eight miles high by the birds. You're just, I was, I was not expecting that the first time I listened to it. It's always, like I said, you know, 31 years later, it's still like, whoa, that was that, what, where did that come from? And then obviously by the time you get to the end to it, um, you know, they, they wind it up with a, their version of when the levee breaks with the the the, the um, nowhere with the titular track, uh, <clears throat> which is still one of my favorite songs. That one's it's uh, I, I just love the way it wraps up and everything. I do think that for me it ends in the right way with nowhere. Like I like that big bombastic sort of ending um for this record. I can see why on the vinyl version they would end with Vapor Trail. Um and I they had to because this goes well over 44 minutes. But I do think um that song earns its place on this record. I did like make my so in terms of what didn't work I don't love the 
um, track list way it's organized. I actually redid it myself on my iTunes because I got the MP3s and and rearranged the tracks dramatically to what I would make as far as fitting it onto a vinyl record. Um, so I kept the beginning and the end, but everything in the middle is like totally rearranged. And I, I just felt like Kaleidoscope was not the, the strongest second track. Like that to me suffers greatly from its production right off the bat when they start that guitar part on that song. Um, Jay, did you have any problem with the running order? I, um, I didn't, I, I like, uh, actually like the idea if it would have ended on taste, I think, um, you know, the ending on the, brighter note is kind of interesting to me i like the middle of the record um i like in a different place polar bear dreams burn down uh so i don't have a huge issue with the running order i also didn't mind the production it's interesting um i mean i kind of can get what people are saying maybe the version i'm listening to was remixed or something or remastered i'm not sure but i was able to discern more than i thought i thought it had more separation than i expected um yeah it's not i mean some of the tones i think to make room for the drums and the vocals some of the guitar tones are um eq'd a bit odd but i think it doesn't feel muddy to me because i can hear the drums and i can hear the vocal that makes sense a lot of times i think when you go for a big guitar sound, it just sucks up all the space and you end up like losing the drums. <laughs> um, it's hard to do that or you lose the bass. Yeah. And I felt like they pick some interesting tones for some of the guitars, even some of the bass sometimes. Like I noticed on taste, the, the bass is distorted. But I think that is in the attempt of, you know, when you, everything comes together, you can still make space for everything and hear it all. So I was okay. I mean, it has the appropriate amount of washiness that you would want from this type of, you know, band. I mean, that's just part of how they play and the overall like feel they're going for. Um, I think it's, I, I think it's important to remember just how old this album is. I mean, yeah. it was released in 1990. There was, I mean, we're talking pre nevermind the pre, yeah. you know, at the time we were listening to a lot of sub pop, and this album was a little bit divisive amongst my group of friends. They thought it was a little too flowery and a little too throwback. And we were, you know, we were listening to Mud Honey and Soundgarden and stuff like that. And but I, I just I I loved it. And I the whole shoegaze thing was interesting. I think I read an article about shoegaze and spin not long after that. And New Music Express called it the scene that celebrates itself. And the whole thing with shoegaze being these affected young guitarists staring at their feet because they had so many effect pedals and everything. The whole, th the whole thing was fascinating to me. And then of course, you know, then loveless came out, which I have to dif disagree. That's uh loveless is a, is, is an incredible album. So I have to disagree with the one commentator on that. Yeah. I think I, they're, I, they're two different ballparks in a lot of ways. I don't think it sounds they're, like they're, they're so, they're so early to the game. I mean, they, this was released in you know late 1990s. So they were, you know, record these were songs that were working out literally in the late 80s. That was so far ahead. I mean, yeah. 
you know, you still had Poison and Cinderella were still top of the pops back then. And, and right. that was, yeah. this was so out of left field. It, it sounds much better than I would have expected for a record recorded. I mean, they must have recorded this either in early 90 or 89. Um, yeah. And considering the type of music they play, um, I, I was okay with it. I expected it to be muddier and harder to listen to than it is. But I mean, we've talked about a record not on the main podcast, but there were elements of this, small parts, but there were elements of this reminding me of the first Stone Roses record in terms of its jangle pop, in terms of its 60s psychedelic influences. And we talked about on one of our 80s episodes. Yeah. Um, this is a, a mixed in a little bit differently and recorded a little bit differently, but you can still hear those. Like Kaleidoscope, that clean guitar, uh, you know, I don't know if there's any, there's probably some effect on it. There's probably a little bit of chorus or something on it, giving it that shimmy, Mm -hmm. but that wouldn't sound that far off from that stone roses record. Yeah. And in terms of, uh, the guitar tone and yeah, I mean, you know, everybody thinks of loveless as being the, the big, my bloody Valentine record, but that's their, like what their second album. And they had multiple EPs, before yep. that, I mean, they had been around for a couple years before that. When did Isn't Anything come out? Was that 88, I think, maybe? Yeah, and Tremolo. I mean, all that. Yeah, so uh, people think of the 90s as sort of the shoegaze scene, but actually it began closer to like 88, 87 uh, in terms of like these bands really starting to percolate. Um, and I, I think that we don't have as good an idea about that because um we're so focused on like understanding or we have been you know the what was happening and what caused the seattle scene to happen what caused you know college rock explosion that i don't have a good idea of like what the 80s underground i know that there was like the jesus and mary chain and creation records and stuff happening with 4ad but like i don't have the through line to like know where what ride was listening to in terms of like uk bands that were happening at the time i mean you could probably draw a line between psycho candy and and some early shoegaze with the the noise sounds and and whatnot but that's something i need to like spend more some more time on i i we covered it a little bit on the shoegaze episode but it was really more 90s shoegaze that we were talking about as opposed to sort of the origins um is there anything that doesn't work for you rudy on this record uh, no, I guess it's got a, it's got a little. When I first time listened to it, it had some sameness to it that it was. I, it, it, I thought it kind of drug, but the more I listened to it, the more I saw they, the guys really are brilliant musicians. Everybody in that band is incredible, and it, it really holds up well to repeated listings. I think that's the indication of any great record, and I would put this as what one of the great records um, to ever come out. Is it just really holds up to repeated listening, and you can really you really feel like you're getting what they're trying to to impart on it. So, you know, all in all, it's uh, I've been obviously since I, I made the pick, I've been listening to it in my truck, you know, during the day and stuff. And I just fell in love with it all over again. It's just such an amazing album. And this. Uh, I don't know what the exactly what the reviews were at the time, because, you know, stuff like Pitchfork and uh, what have you didn't exist to tell us what to think. But it has ended up on a lot of like those retrospective lists of 
you know, the 1001 albums you have to hear before you die and Pitchfork's top 100 albums of the 90s and Spin's top 300 albums of the last 30 years and Enemies uh, picked uh, Vapor Trail as the 81st best song of the 1990s. And uh, same thing, Pitchfork picked it as the 145th best song of the 1990s. So it's definitely gotten accolades. I don't know that the album sales have been up there. I don't know how well Ride has done. Probably not much in the U.S. I don't think they ever had a breakthrough single the way that, you know, Blur or Oasis or any of the Britpop bands did. So I would imagine the majority of their successes come from the U.K. and and Europe and maybe Asia and... uh, Australia like the United States just never got shoegaze in a sort of uh mainstream way ever right so it's got the perfect album cover too because living on the coast of California um, anytime I'm driving along and I see an uncrested wave coming in like that it always just makes me think of this album because it perfectly imparts what kind of music this is with this big energetic uncrested wave just coming through the water I, I think it's a perfect album cover i agree it is a very is that supposed to be the Loch Ness well monster i was thinking it was supposed to be the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> <laughs> uh all right let's talk about our overall ratings on this we'll get to our patreon final vote in just a sec jay where do you land worthy album better ep or decent single i'm at a worthy album i i struggle a little bit obviously the 15 track version is is a lot to take in um i think the cd version i i think here and now is it yeah here and now and nowhere feel like those two songs go together to me and they sound different so it's a little piece together, it feels. Um, so I, I prefer if it was, you know, down to eight or nine tracks. I think this is also the type of band that just, I think that format, that time and format works better because um, it is, it's a heavy listen. You know, you, I guess what's interesting about it is you, you can totally put this on and work to it and it's great background music. You can also actively listen to it and start pulling apart what's going on and really get a lot mm-hmm. more from it. But I think um, when it's on in the background at 11 tracks, you can start to feel like the same thing. So 
I'm going to wear the album with, I think a little bit of editing would be, would be good. So maybe a seventies album uh, would be best for me, but I think it's a, it's a really cool listening and, and unique within um, I think, especially for 1990. I agree. We're the album. I, like I said, I did my own version. So this is my track list. I have an eight song version last 40 minutes. Nice, nice uh, uh, four songs per side vinyl. I open up with Seagull. Then I go right to Dreams Burn Down, Vapor Trail, and Taste. That's my side. That's my A side. And then my B side is Here and Now, In a Different Place, Decay, and End on Nowhere. I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. It's got, a, it's got a Led Zeppelin 4 feel to it for sure that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh so rudy you joining yes. us with the worthy album uh, absolutely yeah all right still one of my favorite albums well the patreon community by a 70 to 30 well, i guess you call it a landslide uh landslide vote said worthy album uh no decent singles just uh we had a few uh, better eps out of the votes uh, it looks like, you know, a few people mentioned it in the comments, but the vast majority were on the side of of Worthy Album, and uh, I, I hope people will check this out if they haven't. Um, I know shoegaze is like the hard genre to sell certain people on because of the, the connotation of the noise and the and the big guitar and feedback and whatnot, but I feel like this would probably be a good entry point because it's not overwhelming in terms of its, you know, guitar tones and stuff like that. And that's such a lump category, too. I know that they they didn't like, I was reading some stuff, and they said they didn't really like having that name stuck to it. And, yeah, if people are thinking that, well, if My Bloody Valentine is typical shoegaze, this is so unlike My Bloody Valentine. I mean, the only similarity is that they're, you know, they're loud, noisy albums, but... Um, like Jason said, you know, you can understand the vocals in this. And I and I love my bloody Valentine, but it just we tend to we tend to lump everything. In. We have to categorize everything. So have this in with you know the same as Catherine Wheel and Lush and mm. all these other bands. Like it's that's that's a pretty broad category. I, I feel like uh, like when dreams burn down, when they start bending that tremolo, uh, that's you're getting into some shoegaze uh, yeah. pretty heavily. You know, on maybe it's not a shoegaze album. Maybe they're just shoegaze elements or songs to it. Um, I think there is a case to be made that it's it's got more dream and jangle pop in a lot of cases, um, based on what we've talked about. But uh, they definitely they let it they let it rip on a couple songs, and I'm okay with that. I'm I'm happy that they do that. I also just love the drum intro on Dreams Burn Down. I just think that's cool as hell. Well, the, the drumming on this whole album, that guy, I don't, I don't know what speed he's on, but I don't know. I, he, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that is some of the craziest. I, I, I love that you compared it to Keith Moon because that's what it made me think of too. It's just that crazy, just right on the edge of being out of control drumming. And yet anybody that's new to the album, just listen to Seagull and just listen to these guys. It's just, you can just tell these is just a bunch of young guys who all love to play and they are all just, it just the it they're trying to outplay each other. That's the feeling you get from it. It's like let's just hit this thing hard, jump you into this album. But Rudy, thank you so much for bringing yeah. this to the table. This is such a good record to have in the uh, the dig me out 
uh, ouvoir or whatever that French word is that I can't pronounce correctly. Uh, catalog. Yeah, they, uh, I remember what uh, when they did the reunion, they came on my back on my radar, and I remember thinking at the time, like, "Oh, this is a band I got to go back and spend time with." So they played Columbus right before COVID hit, like really close. Got in a show at uh, there's a new venue here, or, or not new now. I mean, it was it was new a couple years ago, but uh, I didn't get to go. To that show for whatever reason i think it was like a sunday night and i was doing the podcast and i am dedicated to doing this uh, podcast every week so i skipped out on seeing ride and uh everybody no said it was awesome you. no <laughs> no fun nope will not no be fun. tolerated if it was if this was the 1980s i would be missing um uh, what was the show on Sunday night that was, what was it? Uh, Dukes of Hazzard was on it like every Sunday. Yeah. I would have been missing Dukes of Hazzard every weekend. And that would have been, uh, that would have been a bummer. Um, I want to remind folks, Patreon is where you can go and be just like Rudy. You can, you can pick an album or you can vote in out, vote on our uh, albums that we uh, put in the poll uh, that were suggested through our website, digmeoutpodcast.com. Or you can comment over at Discord or talk just about anything. Music, food, you're losing sports teams, commiserate with us. And uh, it's all happening there. It's also where you go, uh, digmeoutpodcast.com, that is, to uh, uh, get the box newsletter, which is a weekly newsletter sent out by jay with two reviews usually by me but are also our, our patrons contribute reviews to the box of new releases uh music books and movies and tv shows relevant to 80s and 90s music um get it delivered to your inbox or you can check it out at patreon it's both places it's uh it's everywhere and nowhere at the same time because it's the internet so it doesn't really exist <laughs> once the uh, once the grid goes down and uh <laughs> lastly apple podcasts that's where you go to leave some uh, positive feedback for the show for jam tim we're out we'll be back next week with another episode dig me out <laughs>